1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hi, New Books Network. This is your host, Nathan Moore. In this episode, we are delighted to welcome Veronica Kieran in her book, Stories of Elders, What the Greatest Generation Knows About Technology That You Don't. It is about those born between 1915 and 1945 and who are the world's oldest citizens. Kieran says that she is an anthropologist and a serial entrepreneur who has also been given honors by organizations like Forbes, the Business Equality Network, and Go Magazine. If you are a small business owner or are into business at all, Veronica Kieran has what you need to succeed in business and life, and she coaches her clients with passion. Veronica, where did the idea to start writing this book come from and when was it?
1: Uh, The idea came to me probably in 2014, but I started taking action in 2015. Um, I was running a tech company at the time and I could tell that things were really changing in the world. That was uh, when social media was starting to accelerate, um, our online identities were growing, and um, I could tell the way that even I was relating to, to technology as somebody in tech was, was changing the way that I perceived relationships and how to get along in the world. Um, for example, I used to prefer phone calls. <laughs> now I'm reticent to take them. Uh, and so I, as you said, my degree is in anthropology, And so to me, if I feel that there is something going on, I go to people to discover it. And so, um, being that my, uh, my speciality is paradigm shifts and the high tech revolution certainly is one still going, uh, I decided that I would put together a project. It evolved over time. Um, but but I ultimately interviewed 100 people in the greatest generation to understand, you know, what, what, what is it like to go from hearing the first radio in your town to then owning an iPhone? But also within that context, there's a, there's a rootedness um, that they know what life was like before high-tech. So they know humanity in isolation from high-tech. And the rest of us these days can only surmise what life was like beforehand, and thus is it changing us. And so that's why I went to them in particular. And um, yeah, it was was an amazing experience.
2: And you doing oral interviews, that was like a real primary point of emphasis. Why did you decide to do interviews, and then also why did you decide to... Take that journey of over 11,000 miles across the U.S. driving?
1: Good question. Uh, so as a cultural anthropologist, I rely on ethnography, which is a fancy word for storytelling and in structured in, structured interviews. So um, that's what I knew how to do. And I knew that if I did anything less than that, for example, surveys or um you know, just scraping the web or looking at statistics, that's all secondary research. And I wanted primary research, which is talking directly to the people about their experiences, because there's a purity in that. You can't, you can't uh, shape that uh, through layers of uh, understanding and perspectives. When I put their words in my book, it's their words. And so it's up to you, the reader, to, to gather what you will from it. Um, and so that's, that's what I thought was really important to do, especially because the perspective was leaving us, has been leaving us.
2: Was it originally only 100 elders that you studied, or are there others that didn't make it into your final draft of the book?
1: Mm. There are a few that didn't make it in. There was one woman who consented to an interview, but um, a form of palsy had made it very difficult for her to speak. And so even transcribing her conversation with me was difficult. And it it didn't – it wasn't something that would have been – possible to put in uh, a book. So there were a few people like that who said, yes, I want to contribute, but um, it just wasn't possible for various reasons.
2: Can you speak to the audience about minority communities? There's an episode where you document Virgil Westdale, Mm -hmm. who was a Japanese person, Um. Are there other people like that that you want to talk about more?
1: Yeah, um, Nathan, that's a really awesome question, and I'm glad that you asked it because I worked really hard to try to create a valid subsection of the United States in my interview process. So I know it's only 100 people. It's not a lot. Um, I mean, it's not nothing either, but um, I knew that we have to involve people from all walks of life and all experiences. And so I made sure, you know, there were people who had disabilities, people of color, native peoples, LGBTQ people, um, because all of those perspectives and and experiences play into how technology reached them and how they use technology. So, yeah, Virgil, I think about him often because I actually live really close to Dachau concentration camp in Germany. And he was the first, um, he, his, his regiment was the first on the scene to liberate that concentration camp. So I think about him often. Um, and he talked very, very much about discrimination that he faced as he was uh, in the army. And so, um, yeah, there were a lot of conversations that I had about how technology uh, is, is at times discriminatory because of access, uh, due to wealth or due to, um, gatekeeping because of diversity, unfortunately.
2: Is there more that you can tell us about the LGBTQ community in your research?
1: Yeah. Um, I interviewed some really amazing people, um, in the community and, they they talked about how um, how much technology has done to connect compared to back in the day, which I guess if you was if you wanted to, you could certainly say, you know, printing and flyer making uh, is a technology. you know, the the printing press was definitely a technology, but so they were using an, a different type of technology in order to communicate. Um, but it, it had to be so often. Um, you know, kind of through layers and signs and symbols in order to be seen and and be safe. Um, and so and and there were also some fights and battles on the social scene that that came about that they stood for because of uh, just who they are. So um technology has has certainly aided younger generations in a way that, you know they might take for granted compared to our elders.
2: Of the one hundred elders, how many are still alive today?
1: Mm, I I don't have a firm statistic at this time because I've fallen out of contact with some of them. But I think maybe fifty percent. Um, we just lost yet another one um, last month, and we we when we find out that one has passed on. Um, and we haven't yet done an, a podcast episode for them. Then we we make sure we do a special episode and send that to the family, um, because then the family has their loved one's voice recorded, um, and that's a really a big gift.
2: And now, in retrospect, or something that came up when you were doing the research, what are like the common themes, either technology wise or? in people's personal accounts that were recurring.
1: I think that us younger folks tend to think that our elders demonize technology and think that it's bad and are just against it. And what really kept coming up over and over again, and what I talked about in my TED Talk as well, is that they really were focused more on how to use it as a tool, that this is a tool, it is a gift. Um... But anything that is a tool can be overused. And so how do we proceed into the future with mindfulness while not losing really our humanity in this thing? Um, I think that's something we're, we're still struggling with every day. You know, I, I'm somebody who rather enjoys TikTok, <laughs> um, but it's up to me to then watch and uh, Watch my behavior, watch my habits so that I don't lose myself. I get the benefit of the learning and the community, but I don't lose the opportunities that are, are around me in the physical space as well. So that was that was really the big, I think, like the number one was just how are we using this and how do we keep being mindful so that people grow up um you know, the, our elders would say in a well-rounded way, um, but what they really mean is, is not losing out on opportunities that are endemic to being human.
2: What is it about Facebook that makes you want to take a step back from the platform? And then how are you leveraging social media to advance the ideas that are in your book? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Aha! You found that, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I personally feel very strongly about living a values-driven life, and um, you know, I learned pretty young that other people's values weren't my values, um, and that took in the the, the form of bullying because I was different, because I thought something different, and um, so as I am a business owner and thus a leader, and have published this book. And so I'm also a thought leader. Um, I think it's important for me to to demonstrate, again, that, that sense of values. And I don't want to ask my community or my clients to engage with me on a platform that is known for data manipulation and selling data and just all kinds of things. If uh, if you haven't seen The Social Dilemma, I suggest it because it really unpacks that in a very um, easy to understand way. And so that to me is is what I try to communicate and how I keep communicating the values of the book, um, which again, it, it's not up to me to speak for the people I interviewed. That's why the their words are... Uh, reproduced in the book. I don't summarize. Um, I don't embellish. I let them speak for themselves. And then I connect them either because they were living in the same state or they spoke on the same subject. I do my part to connect them in order to create a narrative. That's it. Um, and so these days I, I work including using social media. Um, but in my writing and, in my work with my clients to remind that we can find balance and um, to think about what our identity means with and without the context of technology because technology, again, it's just a tool. So if we take it away, who are you? I think that's really important for everyone to decide.
2: And what are your thoughts about a technology Sabbath day?
1: Uh, I love that. Uh, I think that's, you know, up to anyone who wants to do it. There's a subreddit called no surf and that it's for people who want either, as you said, a, a Sabbath day, a day off, um, time off, or even completely removing it from their lives. If it's not serving you, you don't have to be there. Um, the messaging is designed to make you think you need to be there, but you don't need to be there. There are ways to connect that are thousands of years old. So um, I personally, I've toyed with the idea of just putting my router on a timer. I haven't gotten that extreme yet, um, but I charge my phone outside the bedroom and that has helped me set very healthy boundaries. Um, I'm the type of person though, that if I buy the chocolate, then I'm going to eat the chocolate. So if it's not in the house or if it's not within reach, it's not in my room, I won't use it. So um I I have I personally haven't had to be so extreme as um a whole day or having um you know router router at midnight going dark or anything like that yet.
2: Can you tell the audience more about what intergenerational miscommunication is?
1: Oh gosh, it happens all the time. Um sometimes it's values based again. So um, when you are speaking with someone and they're they're harping on something that doesn't make sense to you, they might be trying to communicate to you something that means a lot to them. But a lot of times each generation has different contexts for understanding. And so if there's no fit, I think of it like a Lego. like if you don't have the, if you don't have the divots, in the right shape then the other lego can't plug in. And so um and so then we talk past each other and we get confused and we get frustrated and we focus that frustration on each other instead of focus that frustration on the fact that there's just missing pieces and missing tools for understanding each other. Um and so if there are people in your life who are of a different generation than you and you're striving to communicate with them. Um, my suggestion is to go back to basics um, and points of com- commonality. And um, you would find this in any etiquette book, actually. Um, and it's just a starting point. I'm not saying just be vanilla and um, you know surface level conversation, but we can always have conversations about the weather because everyone experiences weather somehow, right? Um, we can talk about outfits, because that's a choice that people are making every day. Um, food is, again, something that people are experiencing uh, every day in many ways. Um, and so if we focus on commonalities and then we can start to branch out, we start to find out where other layers exist for communication. Um, and that way, sometimes you find a back door to the thing that wasn't fitting before, um, it didn't make sense before, um, and it turns out you had to turn it around and come at, come at it from a different angle in order to finally get there. So um, it can be frustrating, but I ask everyone to have patience and remember that it's not ignorance, it's not, um, it's not willful uh, attacks, it's simply confusion due to a lack of commonality in one particular way.
2: In some of your next chapters, you write about money and then poverty. How is technology a part of a revolution in getting people out of poverty?
1: You know, I'm not a money expert. Um, In some ways, one could argue that technology has widened the gap. Because if you can't afford to be on the Internet then you're missing out on a lot of opportunities. So now we have an opportunities gap growing. And that's something that uh, the people in my book are really concerned about. Um, On the flip side, we have access to money that is digital uh, in, in cryptocurrency that allows for wealth to transfer in new and innovative ways. For example, one of my friends works for a foundation that teaches women in Afghanistan to code. Women in Afghanistan are not allowed to own money, but cryptocurrency is not uh, a fiat currency. It's not managed by the government, and so it falls into a crack. And so that's how the women are being paid. And so um, while that's outside of the United States, it serves the point that technology has opened ways for um, access to wealth and... um, opportunity, but if you don't have access to technology, then you're missing out on that. So I, you know, I'm a great example. I'm a self-taught web, web designer and I built a company which I then sold, um, just through Googling a whole lot for several years. Um, if I hadn't had access to the internet, then I couldn't have built that company. So, um, in some ways it's a, Equalizer, and in some ways, it uh, exasperates the gaps.
2: How is technology turning toward luxury, according to some of the elders?
1: Well, I mean, I just spent a $1,000 on my iPhone. Like, is that really necessary? <laughs> now, I can write that off because I'm a business owner, but wow, that's a lot of money. Um, and so... In some ways it is unnecessary it's if I if I'm if my aim is to communicate and just be able to access the web or maps or whatever to navigate with a smartphone you don't need to spend that much money on an iPhone right um, And so in in a lot of ways I think our elders are looking at technology and saying do I really need that and then do I need a subscription on top of it? And so they're using caution um, with regards to budgetary spending because if it's not going to have a direct uh, improvement uh, for access or just on their lives in general. For example, um, I'm, a, I'm a fair advocate for um, my parents getting Apple Watches because now it monitors their – Um, their O2 stats and if they fall and, um, and they can make phone calls from it. If they, if they get into trouble, you know, and my parents are perfectly healthy and fine, but so if it has a direct impact on health and wellness or access or opportunities, I think that it doesn't feel as much as a luxury, but, um, but in many cases it can seem quite frivolous if you've been living a life for 70 years without the thing.
2: Have you found a correlation between physical and mental health with technology use?
1: Yeah, um and again I'm not a, I'm a mental health researcher, but there has been definite uh clarity on how mental health gets affected by technology, specifically around mental health and social media. I can, delve, I can tell you personally, my eyesight suffers because I stare at a screen every single day. Um, but we, when I was writing the book, we suspected that social media was affecting the mental health of the individuals using it. and um, those days, it was mainly younger generations. Um, today, we are certain that social media affects mental health. And so, um, unfortunately, it's left up to the individual a lot of times to create boundaries that are healthy so that they remain healthy. Um, But, you know, in in other ways, technology has improved our health. Uh, The procedures that we're able to do medically are incredible. We're, my friend just had stem cells put in her knee in order to regrow her cartilage. It's amazing. So um, I don't want to harp on only one aspect of technology when technology brings opportunities and um, certainly improves our health in other ways. So um, it's kind of a double-sided coin, I guess.
2: And were the elders criticizing the current state of technology? Or were they supporters of it?
1: Uh, As I said, they were, they, they, they noticed that technology has brought us amazing opportunities and um, health and wellness. Um, Hello, we went to the moon, (laughs) you know, so they were like really amazing things that have been very exciting um, and hope inspiring. Um, There were aspects of technology they were worried about. Um, And so, the resounding call was, this is a tool. How do we want to use it? Um, and and I think on the individual level, it's important to ask at every stage when you adopt a, t- a new technology, this is a tool. How am I going to use it? Um, but I, I, I wouldn't say that overwhelmingly um, they went one way or the other. It was um, actually... Rather neutral and curious and cautionary, um, I think was the average of what I was hearing from them.
2: Who were some of the earliest born elders uh, for your book? I think you put it down as 1915. And what made them unique?
1: <laughs> well, don't I wish I knew? Actually, it was 1911. Um, two women. They were 100. They were both 104 when I interviewed them, um, and I interviewed them in 2015. And, um, well, they both lived in Missoula, Montana. So maybe there's something about uh, fresh mountain air. <laughs> I don't know. Um, they both grew up in what would be defined today as poverty. And that came up many times as well. You know, you're asking about money, um, our definition of poverty and what that looks in. And- Feels like it's different today because of technology, um, but I, I don't know what the what the secret of longevity is for them. Um, but I can tell you, they're both very active women, um, and and really hadn't stopped. The that not they've both passed away since I interviewed them. Um, one passed on at one hundred and. Six and one passed on at 107 and a half.
2: <laughs> Do you remember the artifacts or memorabilia um, of historical technology that some of these folks had in their homes?
1: I'm thinking of a someone had a old radio, really old radio. Um, that was an heirloom, a vitrophone. Uh, so, you know, the, the precursor to a record player had a heavier needle and a, um, kind of funnel that would put out the sound and you have to wind it. Um, I, there was one man who, he didn't have the machines anymore because he had retired from farming, but he had built models for all of the old machines, the combines and, um, uh, tractors and things that he would use as a farmer, and they were functional. Um, they, they articulated and, and did everything, and he would show people that in order to explain how things had been done. I'm thinking, I'm pausing because I'm thinking back in my mind um, and, and thinking of who I visited and what I saw, um, but I think that probably sums it up for now.
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. As a technology evangelist, was there room for entrepreneurship within these elder stories that you could relate to?
1: Was there room for entrepreneurship in the stories?
2: Yes, or did the topic of business come up for you um, or for some of the people?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I interviewed people who either had been entrepreneurs themselves or they had been, um, involved in the business world and the business community. Um, and so, you know, on one side we had, um, a woman who she, she's featured in the documentary as well. So you can actually hear her say this and see how she laughs about it. Um, but she was the secretary in an office, and um, her her boss used to tell her that she had to fix um, her memos right at the end of the day. And the reason that's significant is because there were no word processors yet. She was doing this on typewriter, and um, you had to do uh, carbon copies, and so pressure. Uh, between the pages is what would transfer the ink in order to create more than one copy from the typewriter um, And so it was a lot of work and it was a bit frustrating for her. but on the flip side um, you know we had business owners there's a man in Detroit who owned a um, a temp agency. And really worked hard to keep up with technology in his business. So, you know, when, when the fax machine came out, he got a fax machine for the office. When word processors came out, he got word processors for the office. Um, when computers came out, he got computers. And um, it was interesting to talk to him about his perspective because he'd worked hard to stay up with it, but he still was cautionary with regards to technology's use.
2: There are video documentaries about your research online, like Ruth Harper and Gus Ketsoris. Can you explain to the audience how you followed up with some of these elders? Um, and you you mentioned that you lost contact with some of them. Are you still following up with them?
1: Mm. The ones that, um, that I had close contact with were either family members or community members for the most part. Um, You know, Gus passed away last year. My cousin's mother-in-law just passed away. But, um, you know, several others are still uh, alive and well. And so I love it when I hear from them. Um, I don't necessarily hear from them often. That probably has something to do with (laughs) the fact that I moved countries. Uh, So I'm a little bit further out of reach. Um, But... I do, I do really enjoy hearing from them, and, and um, one in particular, she lives in Florida, so, so I made sure to get in contact with her and make sure that she was okay after the hurricane there. Um, yeah, they're very – even when I don't speak to them, um, because, you know, we've fallen out of contact, it, they're still important to me. They're still near and dear to my heart. They shared something with me.
2: Airplane culture, for example, grew exponentially as did space technology at the middle of the 20th century. Um, are there any, any real like important topics about flight? Um, and how is flight, I guess, representative of elder culture?
1: Hmm. Um, there are two pretty cool interviews. Well, three really, um, about flight and space travel. So for interested parties, I interviewed, um, John Booth, he worked on the Saturn V. So, um, so that was really fun to hear him talk about, you know, joking around, uh, in the warehouse and, um, playing with liquid nitrogen, (laughs) which is very cold. Um, Uh, there, there was, um, a woman that I interviewed who had become a flight instructor in retirement. And so she, she talked about how, um, the cockpit has changed because the cockpit these days they they call it the glass cockpit because it's, um, it's like a giant iPad and it has all your dials and numbers and features and, and levers and things, but digital. Whereas she was used to flying, um, with pressure gauges and, Actual physical buttons. Um, you know, you mentioned Virgil Westdale. He flew, he was an ace flyer um, for the U.S. Army before they took away his flying license because uh, because of discrimination, as you mentioned. Um, and um, Ned uh, Gold in, was the head inventor on the um, first spy satellites that the U.S. government used in the Cold War. So there were a lot of touch points, uh, more than I expected. Uh, You know, I I expected there to be conversation around flight and space travel, but um, there were much more intimate experiences that were able to be shared with me because of the people that I connected with. Now, others did just simply bring up what I expected. You know, they watched the – um, moon flights in awe and um, commented on that, but but I actually interviewed people who were involved in creating some of those technologies, and that was pretty cool.
2: And as you were driving, did the thought about car culture impact some of the things or some of your interviews? Um, what was the most historic part of your driving route? Um, and can you talk to us about transportation infrastructure in general? <laughs>
1: I mean, yeah, I I drove Route 66 for a little while. Um, You know, that's a major historic highway, um, but it only runs alongside the main expressway for a short while. Um, You know, I think about that movie Cars a lot in this context. It does a very good job of illustrating the problems that have been created by the interstate system. Um, And, and, you know, the interstate system enabled a whole lot. It was a heck of an innovation um, that came from Germany and the Audubon. But um, I think a lot about cars and I think about um, cars, the movie, <laughs> and how it left behind a lot of communities because you could no longer just kind of stop along the way and um, get what you wanted willy-nilly. It had to be very um, engineered stops. Um you know that there were people who were quite off the beaten path that I was able to get to because of the car. Um, you know, if I if 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 I had been driving anything older, um, which I rented a car that was very new and very well rated for this reason, because if I had been driving anything older or less reliable, I wouldn't have been able to um, reach everyone and to do this work. Um, I mentioned in the book, my, I drove so far that the oil light came on in the rental car and I had to trade it in for a different car. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a technology that needs to be maintained as well.
2: There is one story that you write about someone actually committing suicide because of a text message they received. How dangerous has technology been? And is there cause for concern about accidents or personal trauma in the digital age?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is definitely the work of uh, social workers. They have their work cut out for them because young people, there's a gap here, our parents and their parents had two generations minimum to understand how cars and vehicles would fit into our culture and how to teach each other about cars and car safety, right? But social media has been here for about you know one second as far as the human species is uh, evolution, um, and. So we haven't had time to understand it well enough to to cope with it, quite frankly. Um, and and not again, not to say like any one thing is demonic or you know whatever. There's, I, I think the social dilemma does a very good job illustrating the the issues behind it and, and what's motivating it. Really, it's – the more eyes, the more ad dollars. <laughs> but what that results in is, as you said, um, if our young people—it's not even our young people—if if we don't know how to, we—if we don't know, it's going to act that way, and it's going to pull us in and in any way possible, because more eyes equals more ad dollars. And so if I don't know that that's happening to me, then I can't build boundaries against it. Um, I can't be prepared for it to manipulate me if I don't realize that it's going to. So, um, you know, I watch my phone ping and beep at me all day. um, And I see some of the most ridiculous notifications that come from social media because I don't Indulge in the notifications. I actually have most of them turned off. Um, And so when you get to that point, (laughs) they will try to um, send things your way that are going to trigger a response because more eyes equals more ad dollars. So um, I, I suppose my call to action is again, it's a tool for connection and for community and communication, but we need to be equipping young people and then also ourselves with the understanding of how it truly works so that we can create healthy boundaries with it.
2: Also, as an anthropologist thinking about ages... You write about generational change. What do you think the next generation of elders will be talking about, regarding or thinking or doing regarding technology um, in the future?
1: So the next generation of elders are baby boomers, and they've seen more of technology's evolution because they're, for the most part, you know, baby boomers are are aging out, but not quite yet, um, uh, as far as the majority goes. So. Um, so there is still an involvement, but I think that, I think that maybe, I don't know, there, there seems like their opinions are louder. <laughs> um, and that might, that might just be my perception. Um, but how, how, uh, technology is being used is being called into question a lot. And the people who are in power to call those questions are baby boomers, so um, I, I think that questions are good, but um, I think it's yet to be seen what the, what the cohesive narrative is.
2: When did the digital transformation take place and who in the stories of elders talked about that, that digital change?
1: The digital transformation has been has started the second that computers were being developed in the 70s. <laughs> it's been around for a while. Um, everyone in my book had a different opinion as to like what was the what was the takeoff uh, point. So I think um, you know maybe maybe I should leave it to them too really bring that to light.
2: What ideas that you learned writing in this book influenced you more tangibly in your entrepreneurial business? Or did you mention that already? Is there anything else that influenced you to do that?
1: So, you know, I, I was already an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I, I've, transitioned away from running a tech company, um, and now just work to help scale small businesses. Um, but for me, I actually feel like it affected me more on a personal side. There's a book called the giver, um, a great book. A lot of us had to read it in school. If you haven't read it, go read it. Uh, but it, it, Talks about a young man who has to become the one who has the stories and, and histories all in his head from generation after generation after generation. They're not his own stories, um, but he has all of those memories in his head. And he's he's the one that holds them for the rest of the population. Um, and there's more to it than that, but you will have to read the book. Uh and I felt like that. I felt like after I had interviewed these people, I had their stories in my head and I could see history and my place in it in a different way. Um, and so on a personal side, it changed me. And I, I kind of wish that everyone could have that experience. And um, it's hard to get because if your grandparents aren't alive um you know mine aren't um then who do you go to but if you can talk to people who are older than you i suggest it because it will change your perspective um regardless if you agree with what they say it will change your perspective and i think that's a positive thing
2: has anyone mentioned video games
1: yeah uh, there were there were um, you know there there were comments that we're used to, you know, be careful of video games, how much time are you spending? Is that really socializing or not? which we're actually finding that um, video games can be quite good for one's uh, critical thinking and for building community. I know a lot of people who survived the pandemic in a healthy way because of video games, um, but there was uh, a couple who they they got themselves an Atari when it first came out um, in the 60s or 70s. Oh gosh, maybe, maybe it was later than that. Um, and they would put the kids to bed and then they would stay up and play video games together. <laughs> So, um, you know, everyone comes at it from different angles, again, um, and it's a tool. It's how you use it. So for them, it was a tool for connection in their relationship, which is really sweet. Um, and for people, uh, you know, in the near term, it was a tool for getting through separation in a pandemic. Um, but there were definitely concerns uh, mentioned. Uh, the the ones we're all used to about brain development and what are we learning and is this actually a good use of time? Which in my opinion, it's your time. Use it how you want to.
2: Has technology brought the elders closer or farther apart? Uh, you mentioned the connectivity with networks and phones, but then also maybe alienating people You know, who are attached to their phones or other tech.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, because yeah, in many ways it has created more connectivity. For example, uh, there was someone I was interviewing who said that they got to meet their grandbaby, um, just moments after she was born, um, because of video conferencing and, um, you know, they, they lived on opposite sides of the country. And so she wouldn't have been able to meet her grandbaby um, in so, so short of a period of time. Although we wouldn't probably travel so far away from our families if we didn't have technology either. So it's a double edged sword, I suppose. Um, but then, but then there was a woman who complained um, like several of them did that, you know, her, her youngers would come to visit and they didn't know how to relate or they, um, wouldn't pay them any mind. So, um, in, in many ways it's, it's brought us closer because we can communicate across distances and we can communicate cheaper. I mean, I can make a a phone call across the country and it costs me the same if I call my neighbor, you know, that wasn't, that's not how it worked when I was a child. Um, but, uh, it's, it is a distraction if you let it be.
2: And were any of the elders open about their religious beliefs and how it influenced them?
1: Yeah. Yeah, religion came up a bit. Not a lot, but a bit. Um, I think there was a joke made at some point about using phones in church. Um, and I, I think in the context that it came up, there was again, a worry of distraction. So we're just talking about worry of distraction with regards to family members. Um, but there was a concern that, um, technology was distracting people from, um, whatever call a higher power might be, uh, sending them. So, um, and, and there are some – we have noticed that, that secularization has been growing um, in the United States and in many countries. So is that because it's a distraction from a um, – uh deities call or is that or is it because there's more resources and connection with communities that aren't insular religiously insular Uh, you know that's not for me to say that's not my area of research
2: (laughs) are you working on new research about different anthropology topics now Mm
1: -hmm. that
2: we should expect
1: yeah um so I spent the last two years interviewing people around the globe about their experience with the pandemic. So as I mentioned at, at the beginning of our, our chat, Nathan, um, my particular area of interest is paradigm shifts. And so um, a pandemic at this scale is absolutely a paradigm shift, is changed the world. Um, and I think we all were to varying degrees upset about the change because that's how humanity tends to react to change. (laughs) Um, and, and so I, I wanted to document it and it was a real privilege to be able to document it in real time. A lot of times us anthropologists, um, are documenting, uh, pieces of our culture, but, but, in retrospect, to some extent, even though we might be talking to somebody who is alive today, we are still asking them what their childhood was like or what their what their schooling was like or how do we treat um, people in X, Y, or Z. It's removed. Um, and so I was able to document it as it happened, as it rolled out, which was um, exciting, terrifying and also a fabulous coping mechanism. <laughs> uh, we're codifying and translating um, that Data now so that in, a book can be written, but there is no publishing date available yet. It took me three years to codify and prepare Stories of Elders. So I expect Stories of COVID will take another couple years before it is able to be published. But people interested in hearing about stories of inspiration and coping and um, all the things that we experienced, uh, can, can listen to the stories of COVID podcast, just like they can listen to the stories of elders podcast.
2: Do you recommend that people go to your empire retreat?
1: (laughs) Well, yes, I do. Um, (laughs) but I recommend it because first of all, I really believe in the power that is, um, is in Croatia. Um, and I've heard from my attendees that they feel as well. So it's not just because I'm Croatian. Um, and, and I really also can tell you for a fact that transformation doesn't come when you're living in your old habits. And so if you feel like your business isn't getting to the place that you want it to get to, um, try taking a week off and working on it from a place you've never been before. Um, but I am biased because it is my invention.
2: <laughs> How can the NBN audience reach you for inquiries or if they wanted to meet you in person or online?
1: I love that. Um, I ha- I'm have. i not doing a whole lot of book signings lately, um, but I love connecting to folks if they are curious, have more questions, or just want to chat more. Um, the easiest way to get to me is my website, Kieran.com. So um, I'm sure that it'll be in the show notes there. It's easier to just click than try to write down the spelling. Um, but that's where all my books are and um, the rest of my work as well and all my social media links. So it's kind of like the hub.
2: This has been an interview with Veronica Kieran about her book, Stories of Elders, what the greatest generation knows about technology that you don't. I'm your host, Nathan Moore. To get more episodes about history, please tune in to the New Books Network for updates at the website, newbooksnetwork.com.
1: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.